0: Uh, you've all gone very quiet. That's a good, good indication to me that I should get going, although I did promise my fiance Carolyn, that I wouldn't start till she got back, so be prepared. I need to get glared at in a few seconds, I think. But it's your fault, because I was going to wait. Anyway, good morning. Uh, my name is Philip. If you haven't met me before, I lead the church here. It's great to see you, especially if you're new or it's one of your first times. Hope a great time with us. We always love seeing new faces amongst us, uh, and welcome to... The sixth in our series of talks called The Trial. So we've been in a series of talks called The Trial, based in the book of Romans, and I've called it The Trial because Paul, who's the author of Romans, is explaining the Christian gospel very much through a kind of legal lens or legal framework. That's how he's explaining the gospel, and that's why I've called it The Trial. And so far, over the last five weeks, we've looked at what it is to, to see how Paul explains five different and specific angles of the gospel— and how we've done that. Now today I want to take a bit of a pause really. I've called this morning the story so far. I can take a small pause. And really I want to rather than look today at what Paul says in the book of Romans. I want to look actually at something about Paul himself. So rather than looking at what Paul writes, we're going to look at something of Paul's story, something of Paul's biography himself. Because the reason he can explain the gospel so well in Romans is because he's experienced it. He's encountered it for himself. So actually we're going to use Paul's biography, if you like, five vignettes about the story of Paul. And we're going to use those five vignettes of Paul's story to remind us of the five angles of the gospel we've looked at so far. So I really want to help us this morning to be able to kind of consolidate what I feel God has been saying these last five weeks, to help us apply it, to see how these different five angles of the gospel really are beginning to settle deep inside us and hopefully being applied into our life. So if you're brand new this morning, this is a good Sunday for you because you effectively get five for the price of one. And if you have been here all the last five weeks or you have caught up with the podcast, I think it's also a really good Sunday for you because we can take some time just to pause, just to reflect and see how these different angles of the gospel really are working into our own lives. So my prayer is that you're going to find this morning really helpful. Let's dive then into Paul's story Remember, we're looking at less about what he wrote and more about what he and experienced. I need to cast your mind's eye to a hot, dusty, a really hot, dusty road in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. It's in modern-day Syria. And Paul, our hero of this story, if you like, is on horseback making his way along a road not dissimilar to this. You can imagine how hot it was. He's at the end of a 150-mile journey on horseback. He's pretty exhausted. But even though he's exhausted, Paul is feeling pretty confident. He's pretty, pretty feeling pretty confident and assured. He puts his hand into his pocket and he realizes he's got that papyrus letter that was given to him by the leaders in the church, the leaders in Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders who gave him a letter authorizing him to do what he's about to do. He feels pretty confident and assured. He knows what he needs to do is the right thing. He needs to reassert the right order of things. He needs to stop these previous Jews who have forsaken traditional Judaism and have come up with this new way, as he calls it. He's absolutely determined and convinced. The document inside his robes convinces him even more that he's doing the right thing. That what he needs to do is to stamp out this new movement before it gets any further. If he can just eliminate these few Jews who seem to believe that this guy Jesus, who the Romans clearly crucified a few weeks ago, if he can just wipe these Jews out who believe actually Jesus rose again, if he can just wipe these people out, this whole thing will go away. The right order of things will be returned. He can go back to Jerusalem. Him and his fellow Jews can go back to the right order of things, the way it always was, enjoying and obeying the Jewish rules and customs and traditions and waiting patiently for their Messiah. Paul is exhausted, but he's confident, quietly confident and assured of what he's doing. And then this blinding white light just suddenly comes out of nowhere. and I reckon his horse would have reared. He's tossed off his horse. He hits the ground. And as he kind of begins to pick himself up and dust himself down and maybe there's a cut on his head and his horse is probably neighing in the corner and he's trying to catch his breath, what on earth was that? He hears a voice and he can't see where the voice comes from, but he can hear the voice, clear as anything. Paul, why are you persecuting me? There's a voice that he hears, a voice he'll never ever forget. And Paul is absolutely staggered. He's like, is that, is that God speaking? And so he probably stammers, I think, pretty nervously. Who are you, Lord? He says. And then in response, he hears words that he'll never, ever forget. And later on, these words would be of the greatest comfort to him. But right now, these words terrify him to his absolute core because the response comes back I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And it must have hit him like an absolute stone between the eyes. Jesus is God. <laughs> The right order of things is Jesus is God. I've been wrong. I haven't been defending God. I've been effectively persecuting God. I can imagine Paul kind of dusting himself down and maybe wiping the blood from his head, disbelievingly muttering to himself, Jesus is God. That is the right order of things. And Paul must have realized that hot dusty day in modern-day Syria 2,000 years ago, he must have realised in no uncertain terms that Jesus really was God. He wasn't a corpse hidden somewhere, as he'd been insisting. He appeared to be alive and speaking from the heavens as the Son of God. And so for Paul, at that moment, his world was just turned upside down, wasn't it? Everything was just turned upside down. Having insisted that Jesus was not God, it was a corpse that had been rightly disposed of, as it were he now had to acknowledge that Jesus was God. And all of his education, all of his religious observances, all of the traditions that he followed, all of his moral behaviour, all of his determination to defend the Jewish faith suddenly gets flipped upside down. And actually, the right order of things is now in place. Jesus is God. And Paul has to say, I'm not. And nothing else is. The right order of things was restored in dramatic style for Paul on that hot, dusty day in Syria 2,000 years ago. And when it comes to order, and if you were here with us in our first talk six weeks ago, this might be starting to ring some bells. When it comes to order, I think even if we're not a Christian here this morning, most of us will, will quite like the idea of order. Like if Kingston is anything, it's a place of order in many ways. We like things to be in order. We like the traffic to flow smoothly. We want the trains to be on time. We want our film at the cinema to start on time. We want to get an appointment with a GP speedily. We want our salary to appear in our bank account on the same day each month. We do like order to some extent. The question is, what is right order? That was the question we asked six weeks ago. What is right order and who decides what right order is? And The Bible is brilliant because it highlights so many of the core human questions and conundrums. And it highlights exactly this question of right order. And you go right to the beginning of the Bible, don't you? In the Garden of Eden, the very beginning of things. And you see this exact question in, in, in kind of uh, transparent light with Adam and Eve. Because what Adam and Eve do when they say, actually, we don't want to be enjoying the right order of things under God, as it were. They say, we actually, we want to be like God, and they, they subvert the right order of things. That's the first thing that happens when humanity begins to fracture. Is Rather than saying, you are God and I am not, they say, we want to be like God. And humanity has struggled with that conundrum ever since. And if you fast forward all the way through history to 2,000 years ago at the cross, if the crucifixion of Jesus is anything, it is the most dramatic, obvious moment of right order turned upside down. It's the most obvious subversion of right order, isn't it? God kills man. I'll rephrase that. Man kills God. Man kills God on the cross. It's the most overt, obvious moment of disorder that you could imagine. And of course, that's why the resurrection is just so important to the, human, to the Christian faith. That's why we sang about it just now. The resurrection is just so important because when Jesus emerges from death to life, what he's effectively doing is vindicating and proving all of his previous claims to be God. If he'd have stayed as Paul hoped a corpse somewhere, he would have been just that, a corpse somewhere. But by rising from death to life, he vindicates every claim that he made. All the claims that got him killed, i.e. claiming to be God, he proves through the resurrection. Jesus says, I am God, and you are not when He emerges from the empty tomb, and we looked at that, didn't we? Six weeks ago, what does it mean for us, if we're our Christians, to say, God, you are God, and I'm not? And we can sing that. We've sung effectively those things this morning. If I haven't yet wrote a song along those lines, I might do. You are God, and I am not. But we do sing, we sing along those lines. What is it? How is that going for us? That was the first thing we did. How is our heart this morning? If we're a Christian this morning, is our heart in right order? God is God. And not me. Or to push a bit harder, not my spouse, not my job, not my degree, not the bigger house that we're going for, not my dreams and hopes for the future even. All of those things are good things, but none of them should ever become God things. How are we doing this morning with a heart that is in right order? How have you been doing over these last few weeks? Asking God to maintain the right order of things in our hearts. God is God and we're not. That's good news, by the way. That's good news. When our heart says, God, you are God, and I am not, that's good news. That means we fit into how things were originally intended to be, and humans flourish as a result. How are you doing with that this morning? Second story of Paul, second little vignette of Paul's, uh, Paul's life. Many years after Paul was the fiercest opponent of Christianity, of course. He became its fiercest advocate, or its most effective advocate. And in this scene, I've got Paul at his desk. He's got that papyrus document on his desk, some kind of ink. He's writing one of his many famous letters, not the one that we've been doing to the church in Rome, but a different one. He's scribbling away at his desk with his ink and his papyrus. And what he does is he decides to to tell his recipients of this letter, something of his story. I don't know whether you've ever written down something of your story, something of the key highlights of your story. I don't know whether you've actually ever reflected on the hard things that you've been through. Have you ever done that? Reflected on the hard things that you've been through. Specifically, maybe the injustices that you've received. I imagine it's pretty easy to do that. Most of us remember the injustices that we've received pretty accurately, or pretty, pretty harshly at least. And What Paul is doing is he's scribbling down, he's remembering the injustices that he received. He starts to write it down. And I can imagine the eyes popping out on the stalks of those that read this letter a few weeks later as he regales them with the things that he's been through since he became a follower, an advocate of Jesus rather than an opponent. And he regales them with extraordinary stories of storms, of shipwrecks, of beatings that he'd been given of stonings that he'd received, of the false accusations, the imprisonments, the tortures. And he writes line after line with his ink and his papyrus regaling his recipients with some of the injustices that he had received. I wonder whether as he was writing that, did he, did he shudder a bit as he reminded himself of things that he'd been through, things that had been done to him? Did he weep even as he wrote these things? And I don't know anything of what Paul went through. I've never been through any of those things. And I guess many of us haven't been through many of those things the, the beatings and the stonings and the false accusations and the trials and the imprisonments. But it strikes me that m- much of the modern world does know what Paul went through. Even this week, there are people all over the world who know exactly what it is to be forced out of a country, who know exactly what it is to be falsely accused or imprisoned or tortured happens all over the world, all the time. And in our second talk, we said that as much as the modern world would like to get rid of the idea of a God that will judge injustice, as much as the modern world kind of doesn't like the idea of a judging God and has tried to get rid of it, not least because of angry, judgmental Christians, but as much as the modern world has tried to get rid of that idea, we said actually the modern world doesn't realise how much it needs a judging God. Because if the, if the bench of the universe, or the judgment seat of the universe, really is empty, as much of modern society would like to say, or if it's not empty, it's inhabited by some vague, toothless God. If that's really the case, then I would suggest the modern world should be more hopeless, perhaps, than it is. Because people are getting away with the worst kinds of injustice all the time, everywhere. And many will get away with it all the way through to their last breath. And if none of it will ever, ever be dealt with, if there'll be no justice to that justice, if there'll be no perfect, pure judgment ever made, then I would suggest we should be more hopeless than perhaps we are. But it strikes me that when you read Paul's letters, never once does he seem to exude a sense of hopelessness at what he's been through neither does he ever exude a sense of vengeance because of what he'd been through, though one might suggest he would be entitled to do so. The reason Paul's letters never ever exude either hopelessness or a desire for vengeance, despite all that was done to him, is because he knows and believes to the bottom of his heart that there is a judge and it's not him. And that was what we said in our second week that Paul outlines in Romans 2 that he's convinced that Jesus is a judge, that one day all things will be brought to an end, that he will, he will wield perfect justice. He will bring to, to right justice all of the injustice that has been done through history. And so Paul is neither hopeless nor vengeful because he's not hopeless because he knows it will be brought to a conclusion. And he's not vengeful because he knows he's not the judge. Vengeful, angry, judgmental Christians haven't got hold of this. The modern world hasn't got hold of this because it's been put off by the angry, vengeful, judgmental Christians. Paul was neither hopeless nor vengeful because he knew there was a judge and it wasn't him. So again, let's try and drill that back down into our own lives because not many of us are facing shipwrecks and beatings and torture and so on. How do, we deal, how do we react, though, when injustice does come our way? That's a good question for us. How do we react when injustice does come our way? For Paul, he was, neither hopeless, he was neither hopeless nor vengeful because he knew there was a judge and it's not me. All of us will have experienced injustice. Some of you, this is actually the profoundest thing you're wrestling with at the moment, is the injustice that was done to you, and it may have been years and years ago the gospel angle that Jesus is judge and that he left his bench to be judged is good news because it means for the Christian our judgment is behind us. It was done upon Jesus. But it also means that all outstanding injustice will be dealt with one day. So that means as a Christian I I am humble because my judgment has been paid for me. I'm confident because my judgment has been paid for me. And I'm neither hopeless nor vengeful because I know that Jesus will bring things to account one day. He will deal with all things perfectly. The second angle of the gospel tells us that Jesus is judge and that he's been judged. And that should help us to engage with the world lovingly, neither hopelessly nor vengefully. What about the reality? One other question to help you apply this. What about the reality that we are being judged all the time? Aren't we? Come on. I know the modern world would love to say we're a non-judgmental place. But come on, we're not. You're being judged all the time for your CV, for your productivity at work, for your success, for your employability, for your weight, for your appearance. You're being judged all the time. How do you deal with that reality? The Christian can say, the only judgment that matters has already taken place. And that doesn't make me proud because it was done upon Jesus for me. But it makes me confident because it's done. So you can receive the judgments of all kinds of people and you neither lash out in vengeance and neither are you despaired. How are you doing with the reality that you're being judged all the time? So we've said that the gospel brings the gospel angle is firstly that God is God and we are not. That's the right order of things. Secondly, we've said the gospel angle is that Jesus is judge and both judged. Jesus is both judged and judged. Thirdly, let's get back into Paul's life, Paul's story. I want you to imagine a really tense room. Have you ever walked into a room and you can kind of cut the tension with a knife? I want you to imagine a room with two men in it and the atmosphere is tense. These two guys, Paul and Barnabas. Okay. Are we good to go? very much. So I go for this, Chris? Thank you very much. Aren't the AV guys amazing? They deal with people like me clobbering, <laughs> clobbering their stuff. Thank you so much, Chris. Anyway, back to that tense room that we had to imagine. <laughs> and, so, and these two guys really are arguing hammer and tongs. On the one hand, you've got, you've got Paul saying, I am not taking that guy with us again. He let us down. There's no way we're taking him again. Then you've got Barnabas saying, no, 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 we can take him again. Trust me, I can vouch for him. Mark won't let us down again. I know you got it wrong last time, but trust me, Mark can come with us again. And Paul is refusing. He says, no, Mark, this guy Mark left us behind on our last journey to plant churches. There's no way I'm taking him again. No way. It's too important. I can't risk it. And on, on the two of them go, arguing really forcefully to such an extent that at the end, they have to agree to disagree. They go their separate ways. The room stays, a tense room. There's no reconciliation. And Barnabas leaves and does take Mark to go and plant more churches. And Paul leaves and takes Silas to go and plant more churches. I've often thought back to uh, that story, if you like, that moment that we see in Acts of Paul and Barnabas really falling out. I, I don't know who is in the wrong. I don't know who is in the wrong. But I do love the fact that the Bible doesn't try to hide the fact that these two kind of heroes of the Christian faith obviously had a serious falling out. And the Bible doesn't hide that. I wonder if Paul would have felt regret afterwards. We know later on that he's fully reconciled with this guy Mark, who he refuses to trust. So does that mean that Paul was wrong before in that argument? Did he fail to act with the same grace that he himself had received from God? Did he get so caught up in the mission that he forgot and lost sight of how to treat people? Did his old anger and self-righteousness perhaps flare up again? I don't know, it's speculation, and we don't know that much about Paul's specific weaknesses, but he does, I think, very movingly tell us exactly what it is to be a Christian who's full of weaknesses and gets it wrong all the time. You might know the verse that I'm alluding to, but in Romans 7, it should appear on the screen behind me, Paul says this real blunt stuff. He identifies with every Christian. He says, and you can almost hear the exasperation in his voice He says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And I think whether you're a Christian or not, you can identify with Paul's sense of exasperation. We've all got that habit that we just can't break, that thing that keeps tripping us up. Maybe that person who we know deserves a second chance and we've just written them off, perhaps like, like Paul did. But the thing about Paul is that he understood the gospel so well. He understood that everything that he'd done wrong before he was a Christian and everything that he would and did do as a Christian was paid for at the cross. He understood that profoundly. All his guilt and shame for what he had to and would do, all of it, he understood profoundly, was pinned to Jesus at the cross. He understood the human desire to get rid of guilt and shame that we all have. We want to rub it out, don't we? Shakespeare understood that in Macbeth, in the scene I'm talking about and Lady Macbeth in her kind of subconscious dreams, she's trying to rub out the blood from her hands because she wants to get rid of the guilt. Shakespeare knew exactly how the human heart worked. And Paul knows the same thing. And he knows, or he, he he is, even great leader and theologian and church planter that he was, he got it wrong all the time. He tells us, keep doing the things that I want to do and the things I want to do, I can't stop. It's just like us. But what I know he didn't do, what I know he didn't do as a res- response to that, was take himself off away from God and hide for a bit and try and sort it out himself and cover it up. Because you remember in our third talk, we talked about the naughty step, which I'm sure many parents use to, to great effect. But we talked about the naughty step. And we said that for some of us as Christians, we can kind of take ourselves off to the naughty step. We can get it wrong again, and it's often that same thing. It's that proclivity to anger that I have, and I once again lose my temper. We do that thing we know we don't, wanna, we know we don't want to do that we keep falling into. And sometimes, as Christians... If we don't understand that all of our guilt and shame, both past, present, and future, was pinned to Jesus on the cross. That he had to die the most shameful death imaginable in order to defeat shame. The Bible said that he despised it, he destroyed it. If that truth of the gospel hasn't sunk really deep into us, what we can sometimes do is take ourselves off to the naughty step when we get it wrong, and kind of dust ourselves down a bit. Punish ourselves a little bit. Keep ourselves away from God. Effectively kind of complete the work of the cross. And then we come back to God having been in naughty step for a little while. Or, like Adam and Eve, again, perfect example. Like Adam and Eve, right at the beginning, how do they deal with guilt and shame when it comes? They hide, they cover up, and they blame. So how are we doing with that? <laughs> We talked about this in the third week. When we get it wrong, which I'm probably sure that I do more than most, how do we respond? Do we respond by trying to rub it out ourselves? By having a a few hours, a few days, a few weeks on the naughty step? Do we cover up? Do we hide? Do we blame others? Or do we come straight to God? How are you doing it coming straight to God the moment you feel the pang of knowing you got it wrong? That has taken me a lifetime to learn because I would have a little ritual where I would go to the naughty step, keep some distance from God for a while, dust myself down, do a little bit of penance and then come back to God. How are we doing it? Coming straight to God, knowing that he doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. His son had to die for it. He not turn a blind eye to it. But that because his son died for it, all of our shame is pinned to Jesus. Jesus said that he took great joy in destroying shame. I'm paraphrasing Hebrews. So as one person said to me after that talk, let's not waste time sitting on the naughty step. Don't waste time hiding, covering up, blaming. When you get this angle of the gospel that all shame is dealt with, we can live absolutely transparent in front of each other and in front of God. So when you get it wrong this week, and I, would dare to suggest that you might. And when you feel that pang of guilt, I want to encourage you to use this angle of the gospel to cause you to come running straight to God, knowing that he takes sin so seriously, so seriously that he's dealt with the guilt and the shame of it forever. That is the inheritance of the Christian. The naughty step is not. How are we doing with that? Fourth story about Paul. And again, in your mind's eye, go back to him at his desk with his papyrus documents and his ink. This time he's in jail. You've got to imagine a Roman cell. In my mind's eye, it's a really small Roman cell. There's moisture dripping down the walls and maybe just a tiny crack of light coming in through the sides. Maybe you can hear the slamming of cell doors down the corridor. And Paul again is scribbling his thoughts down from his former life. He's casting his mind back as he writes another letter. And in this moment, what Paul's doing in his mind and putting onto papyrus is he's recalling all the reasons that he had to be pretty confident in his old life. He casts his mind back to the the days before Jesus. And he starts to scribble down all the reasons he had to be quite confident, to be quite assured. He realizes that in those days, actually, in some ways, he had a pretty watertight case for winning the approval of all of those around him, even God's. He reminds himself of the immaculate Jewish credentials that he had, scribbles it down. Right family, right tribe, outstanding education, renowned for my immaculate obedience and devotion to the law, Jewish law, power and influence. Paul realizes he had every reason in those days before he met Jesus to actually have the approval and the acknowledgement and the praise of man and even God, he thought, around him. And in that sense, I think Paul is no different to us today. He knew that in those days, just as we do in these days, he wanted the approval of those around him. The human heart wants to be approved of, I would suggest. We really want to be approved of, to be told that we're of worth. I guess if Paul had a Facebook and Twitter account in those days, it would have exuded moral and social respectability. You want to demonize Paul before he became a Christian. He was a very respectable, uh, intelligent, renowned man of God in those days. But then, as he's writing down all these reasons he had for the approval of God and man, he then writes an extraordinary thing, if you know the passage. He says, all of these things, do you know what now? I count them all as completely worthless. Actually, they're like rubbish to me, he says. He doesn't mean they are bad things. He means in comparison to what I have now in Christ, all of those things I used to have, they might as well be rubbish. They might as well be rubbish. None of that, he knows, could have accrued what he really desired, the utter approval of God. He realizes none of his behavior, none of his obedience, none of his understanding of scriptures and and the Jewish law, none of it could have got for him what he really wanted, the approval of God. And Paul understands the gospel so profoundly because he knows the resurrection was the moment at which God fully approved of Jesus. And because he is in Christ, he has all of the approval the Father has for Jesus. Do you remember this talk a couple of weeks ago? And Paul starts to realise, or he would have realised, maybe in his cell, I don't know. Oh my goodness. My debt has not just been cleared of guilt and shame. It's been credited with all of Jesus' perfection and righteousness. All of the approval that God feels for Jesus is in my account. You see, when we as Christians know this, it, I think it just changes everything. Like I've known what it is to be a Christian and to kind of, to know the first bit, guilt and shame dealt with, okay, fine, I get that, credit account from minus 100 back to zero. And I've known what it is to kind of stop there and to almost live as a Christian, kind of looking over my shoulder a bit, wondering whether I might receive the frowning, disapproving look of God. That somehow God and I, are, we're kind of at neutral. Judgment's been paid. Guilt and shame are dealt with. We're kind of We're, we're square, God and I. But his approval, his approval every single morning when I wake up. Isn't that, that must be to do with me a little bit, isn't it? Paul knew that it wasn't. Paul knew that he had all of the approval the Father experienced over Jesus when he rose from death to life when god effectively applauds jesus out of the tomb and ascends back into heaven utterly vindicating all of his claims because we are in christ the christian's account is credited with all of what god feels for jesus and god never changes so you wake up every morning as a christian to the approval of god doesn't mean that sin isn't serious doesn't mean that that god can't be grieved or that he can't experience pleasure over things that you do and say but the, the status, the account in his eyes is full. So how are we doing with that? Fourth angle. Here's a question for you. How do you deal with the disapproval of other people? How do you deal with the disapproval of other people? That's a really good way of testing whether the, the, this angle of the gospel, the approval of God has really gone deep. Because if it has, when you receive the disapproval of others, maybe even those whose approval you long for the most, when it has, when the gospel angle's gone deep, you rest peaceful. You rest peaceful. Doesn't mean it doesn't sting, it doesn't hurt, but you rest peaceful. Because you know you have all of the approval of God. You didn't earn any of it, it was credited to you because of Jesus. So you've got to be humble, surely. But at the same time, you're utterly confident. I have the approval of God in my accounts. So I can act with both humility and confidence. Humility because it was unearned and confidence because it's guaranteed. All of us yearn for approval. We do. It's deep in our hearts. God put it there. And then he met that longing at the cross and the resurrection. If you're not a Christian this morning, I would gently suggest that you are in some ways searching for approval, merit to be of worth, I would suggest to you that longing is a good longing and it's met and secured and guaranteed as a free gift of grace at the cross and the resurrection. Finally, I'm going for a little bit longer than I planned to, but let me just bring this fifth angle to a conclusion. If we could just summarize the four angles so far. Jesus brings us right order. That's the first gospel angle, the right order of things. Jesus is both judge and judged for us. Jesus gets us off the naughty step and Jesus gives us his righteousness and approval. Fifth story, and then I'll close. I don't know whether you can remember your worst moment. I wonder what's just popped into your mind. (laughs) Can you remember your worst moment? I reckon Paul could probably remember and recall straight away his worst moment. It's back in Jerusalem, the days when Christianity was just emerging and he was keen to stamp it out. And the Jewish religious leaders were trying to stamp out the leaders, best way to kill this thing off. They haven't done so well stamping it out with like Peter and John and others. So they go to the second tier leadership, guys like Stephen. And he's hauled up, isn't he, on trial. The trial descends into complete anarchy. He's hauled out by a mob and they decide that such is his insistence, that Jesus really is God, that he's going to be stoned as a heretic, as a blasphemer. And I can't really imagine what that scene was like. Stephen buried up to his neck in the ground, having rocks thrown at his head, (laughs) effectively. Dust flying, shouts and screams, blood flying. And there's Paul, standing, watching on, holding the, the garments, the clothes of those that are doing the killing, nodding his approval, saying this is brutal, but it's necessary. We've got to stamp this thing out. Probably his mind beginning to move away from what's happening there towards the next Christians that he needs to go after. Paul knew exactly what he was like. It's no surprise, is it, that another one of his letters, he refers to himself as the foremost or the worst of sinners. That's how he describes himself. He was well aware all through his Christian life of what he once was. He's happy to talk, happy to talk about it. And it was the awareness of what he once was, as we talked about last week, that gave him both this humility and this confidence. Humility, because he began to realize God sent Jesus to die for me when I was like that. From this last week? Christ died for sinners. Christ died for us when we were sinners, when we were ungodly, when we were enemies of God. And Paul realizes God sent Jesus to die for me when I was at my worst. So it gives him humility. But it also gives him and Christians the greatest confidence. Because God loved me then. God loved me then to do that. So now that I'm in Christ, how much more and how securely am I loved? We said last week that you don't know how loved you are because you don't know how much of an enemy you once were. And we said that the concept of being an enemy of God is a hard one. Very few people in Kingston would say I'm an enemy of God or that I'm setting myself up in opposition to God. But we said that being in opposition to God can be far more subtle than that. It's a condition of the heart that says, I will take for myself as created prerogatives that are only for the creator. I will take for myself prerogatives that are only God's. I will decide how I use my gifts and talents, how I use my money, how I use my body, how I use my time. That's what it means to set ourselves up in opposition to God. Is to take for ourselves prerogatives that are only his. That's what happened right at the beginning of Adam and Eve. And another angle, the final angle of the gospel we've looked at so far is that when we were like that, whether it was dramatic and extreme like Paul, whether your story is one where you were overtly and aggressively defying God as much as you could, or right other than the spectrum, whether you were a child, Age 10, you became a Christian then. And you walked with Jesus ever since. Even age nine, as a child, you were beginning to give yourself prerogatives that are only God's. Remember, children don't need teaching how to do things their way. And the glorious angle of the gospel is that God loved us then. As a nine-year-old just innocently going about being a nine-year-old, but just beginning to set ourselves up in opposition to God. And he loved Paul when he was approving of a vicious murder. We said, you don't know how loved you are because you don't know how much of an enemy you once were. This transforms everything. It really does. It gives Christians poise. I keep referring to these two words, humility and confidence. I think they can be summed up in the word poise. The Christian should be one of poise. I received love when I was at my worst. It was unmerited, unearned. The judge left the bench and was judged on my behalf. Humility should exude the Christian, but so should confidence. So should com- He loved me like that. So how much am I loved now? How secure must it be? I've got the approval of God credited to my account every single morning. Do you see how poised should be the demeanour of the Christian? Humility and confidence, just like Jesus. Jesus walked around poised, didn't he, all the time. Humble, meek, totally confident in what he was doing and who he was. I've gone on for longer than I hope to, but let me invite the band up. We're going to be sharing communion together. And I'm aware that I've rattled through five different angles. And I'm aware for some of you that you've already heard it. But I really wanted to help us plumb this gospel deep into our lives. So what's the one thing you're going to take away from this morning? What's this? What's the one angle of the gospel that really could be applied tomorrow into your life? Is it how you deal with the disapproval or the judging of others? Is it how you react when you get it wrong, as you will do this week? How quick are you to run to the Father's arms, knowing that shame is dealt with and approval is yours? How confident are you in the gospel? How humble are you that you were loved at your worst? The great thing about communion is it's a great opportunity to reflect on the gospel. As you, if you're a Christian, you take the bread and the wine or the fruit juice at the back, whatever works for you. As you do that, I want you really to reflect on what that cross moment of shed blood and broken body did and the angle of the gospel that is for you to apply today and tomorrow. The gospel tells us the right order of things is God is God and I'm not. And that's good news. The gospel tells us that Jesus is both judge and... And he's the judge that leaves the bench to be judged on our behalf. It's good news. The gospel tells us that every single bit of shame that we've incurred and will incur is pinned to Christ on the cross. And we're clean and we can live transparently so. It's good news. The gospel tells us that all of the delight and the approval that the father felt for Jesus as he strode from an empty tomb, victorious and vindicated, is how the father feels about you. It's good news. And the gospel tells us that when we were at our worst, before we'd even thought about God or acknowledged him, we were loved then. So how com- how confident should we be that we're loved now? Who stands? The stewards will appear with communion shortly. We're going to sing a couple of songs. Uh, communion is a wonderful ritual, but we don't have to be ritualistic in how we take it. So you can come down at any point. You can take the bread and the wine at the front There's uh, gluten free and juice at the back take it with yourself with your spouse, with your friends come and do it as that best works for you and use it as a moment to respond I would encourage you if you're not a Christian please feel under no obligation to take communion but why not take time to think why do these people believe that this gospel is such good news and we'd love to talk to you about it afterwards if that would help you Lord Jesus we thank you for your amazing gospel we thank you for all that it has accomplished. We thank you for all of these angles of the gospel that speak into every single part of our life. Thank you that the gospel s- resolves the issue of injustice. It resolves the issue of judgmentalism. It resolves the issue of feeling shame. It resolves the issue of lacking approval. It resolves the issue of trying to make myself God. It resolves every one of our life's issues. We pray, Jesus, that you would draw us into a greater love and understanding of the gospel, that we might live it and proclaim it to the borough of Kingston and beyond. Amen.